This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Uh, we welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first-time listener, for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions and you can call us locally. The number is 843-525-1859, 843-525-1859. Here we are, Rick, in the middle of August, and it's an opportunity uh, once again to delve into God's Word. And people who call can go on the air live. Many people don't want to do that. They're not comfortable having their voice heard, or they want to stay just more anonymous uh, but however you're comfortable in giving us your question, you can call Dictate. We will give priority to live callers this morning, as we typically do. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at W-A-G-P dot net. All right, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. All right, Pastor. Uh, Nick from Beaufort writes, when selling one's home, do you tithe on the gross amount, or do you work out what is profit? Sorry to ask, but this greatly affects the budget we have. We're happy to tithe in obedience and always have. I just realized this makes a huge difference to what and how we manage this. It's a good question, and, and it's the same question that comes up in different forms in venues, like someone has a lawn business, and they do $150,000 in billing during the year. But they have to buy lawnmowers, they have to buy gas, oil, weed eaters, um, et cetera, et cetera. They have their expenses uh, to run the business. And so their their profit, their income, is basically typically what the government considers to be income. So if you sell your home, you bought a home, say, for $100,000. Uh, it's hard to find a home for $100,000 anymore. My first home I bought, Rick, I paid 42000 for um, it wasn't very big. It was 756 square feet, and it had a uh, an attic that um, you had to kind of crouch down in, but it was air-conditioned, and we called it our Elijah room, and sometimes people would come and stay in it. And I made $15,000 profit two years later, and the guy two years after that put another 20000 on top of it. It was in the RDU triangle where houses really escalated. But what I'm saying, you buy a house for 100000 unrealistic, uh, you live in it, and you sell it for $150,000. So your um, profit, so to speak, would be the difference between 150000 and 100000 So you made $50,000 profit. Now you could, I suppose, um, get a little deeper into that, like the government will allow you as your basis to consider not repairs, but uh, actual improvements to the home. And I suppose you could calculate that in if you kept a record of it. In other words, a new roof is not considered uh, an improvement. It's considered a repair. But if you added a wing to the house, 
and you spend twenty thousand dollars to put a wing on, now your investment is one hundred and twenty. And if you sell it for fifty, one hundred and fifty, then you've made thirty thousand dollars profit. So you tithe off of the thirty thousand, or in the first example, off of the fifty thousand. So again, it's what's increase, what's income. Uh, that's the general principle in terms of what you tithe off of. Great right. question. Let me yeah. let me play okay. devil's advocate. All right. Then. So what if you uh, go ahead and you bought it for a hundred? You sell it for 150, but then you turn right around and you buy another house for 150. You're just can you kick the tithe down the the road? <laughs> it's, it, it's a good question. I like to stay current with my tithe. I just do. I um, but some people would say, oh yeah, you know, well um, my my fear in that is that God would not get His increase in the end. So you kick it over into another house, and then you buy a house for 250 thousand dollars, and then the market crashes and you sell it for 180000 and God who gave you the increase, uh, well, you missed it. And so it's kind of like, um, you know, if you have money in the bank and uh, you make interest off the money that comes to you as income, you tithe off of your interest. You, you don't wait 10 years. You, you tithe it as the interest comes, so to speak, whether it's annually or biannually. You and know. if I can add one thing, if, uh, if I'm not mistaken, this, this house that you were talking about and the RDU that you had, yes, when you yeah. went to sell it, mm-hmm. it was in the middle of the worst recession of the 70s and uh, interest rates were like 21% at the time and yeah, nothing no, was selling. Yeah, that was my Texas house. Oh, okay. So that was my Texas house when we moved to Texas. Uh, Texas had an, uh, really a recession of its own in that the uh, the bottom had fallen out of the oil market in the real estate in Texas in the 80s. We were there from 85 to 90, was indexed to the uh, market. And so you buy a house for $80,000. And uh, the challenge was like, for instance, we bought a house here in Texas for seventy nine nine, brand new home in 1985. Uh, when we moved five years later, we sold it for seventy four nine. Uh, so, but we also during that period of time had the tax break that we had on interest, and interest basically at that time was between ten and twelve percent. So, I paid eleven and a half percent interest on a home. So, when you see these uh, homes that people are buying now, you know at two percent or three percent interest, that's nineteen sixties stuff. Yeah. Uh, we haven't seen that in in decades, and. And that's because, you know, the we've got a huge borrowing problem in the United States, and the only way the government can fix it is by lowering interest rates and printing money and lowering interest rates and printing money, and they're running out of tools. And some nations in Europe actually have negative interest rates. That's how desperate and how bad it is. Uh, we're headed towards the same disaster in America. Um so, no, we made money on the house in North Carolina, and we tithed off of that. Uh, we didn't make money on – there was no increase, uh, so to speak, on the house in Texas. So there was really nothing to tithe as such. But What I thought amazing about that was though, nothing was selling, but God honored you. He did. You know, the thing is, is um, for instance, the house right across the street from us, it was more expensive. It sold brand new for $110,000, but it never sold. They built it and never sold. And then HUD came in, and they were offering that house for $80,000, what we paid for our house. But it was larger. It was two-story. It had more square footage. Of course, you had to qualify for a HUD loan. We had people on our street who literally just tossed the keys, loaded up the U-Haul, and drove away. 
They didn't even bother to call the bank. I mean, it was really terrible how bad the situation was. Uh, we had an attorney who came. She had just moved into the area. She bought our house. She assumed our loan. The challenge with a loan assumption is you're responsible if you let someone assume your loan for five years. So I kind of monitored the loan when I came here, but she was faithful and God was faithful and she made the payments. The challenge is if you don't monitor the loan and someone assumes it and they can only assume it once, uh, she couldn't sell it and then have someone assume it. And so you can assume it only once is the bank often doesn't call you until there are six or eight payments in arrears. And then you find out, oh, you owe X thousands of dollars, you know, shock. So anyway, but God is faithful and he'll take care of his own. And and I was telling our people, Rick, on Sunday, um, this past Sunday, August the 16th, that those who I think will be best in a total downturn of the economy, and apart from a miracle, we're headed there. It's impossible for us to be the trillions of dollars in debt. We've just added over $3 trillion in the last several months. And I'm not blaming the Republicans or the Democrats. Both parties are at fault. But now the situation is so desperate, they don't know what to do but to borrow money. You know, the breaking point, they used to always say that the governmental accounting office was 28 to $30 trillion. That when we reach that amount, we've reached an impossible number. And we're headed fast towards that. So anyway, but God's in control and God's people, much like in the book of Acts, when there was a desperate situation, they came and they shared things in common. And those are the people who are in the best situation to really first help the household of faith and then those outside of the household of faith. All right. Very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, you can also email us at uh, tbl at net. Brenda listens to us in Columbia, and she is grateful for your courage to speak God's truth into the LGBTQ movement. She writes, you have taught me a lot of scripture and principles by which to defend my beliefs that it is wrong. I was having a conversation with a family member who is not gay, who is a Christian, and sent me this podcast. Her question to me was, do you believe practicing homosexuals are going to hell if they maintain that lifestyle? My first thought was that not all who say they are Christians are, in fact, born-again believers. But I must say, after listening to these two men, they seem to really know the Lord. Very confusing, but this is what our younger generations are listening to. Would it be possible to get your thoughts on this podcast? And then she writes, thank you for your courage to speak God's truth into the LGBTQ movement. You have taught me a lot of scripture. Oh, we actually, that for some reason, that got so, so let me just say, I think the podcast, I've not heard it, is wrong. It's wrong uh, because if I understand your question correctly, and I'm assuming that someone is practicing a practicing homosexual, uh, what that indicates is there's no regeneration. They've never been born again. But let's be clear because we are living in a day of growing apostasy. We've had evangelical pastors who have come out as gay. We've had leading Christian music groups that have come out and gay just in the last couple of years. And uh, many of them, of course, have renounced the faith and said, well, I was never really a Christian. But lay those people aside. We've got folks who are now saying in evangelicalism that as long as you're a celibate homosexual, and by celibate that there is not physical expression of the greatest degree, though they would say you could hold hands, you can kiss. I mean, it's just unbelievable. 
uh, what some of these folks are saying. And there are there's a so-called leading apologist who now has pancreatic cancer, so I'm not sure he's going to be with us much longer. But, you know, he's advocating. He sent us a survey, churches all across America, pastors on how to be gay-friendly. Well, look, we want to be gay-friendly in that we want to reach gay people for the kingdom of God. But it's a reprehensible lifestyle. Let's be very clear. God says if, I'm, if there's a man who lies um, with a man, he calls it an abomination. He says the same of a woman. He says the same in Romans chapter 1. And by the way, I have a sermon, is it okay to be gay? And the answer is no, it's not. It's not okay to be gay. It is something that uh, God views as detestable. God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burning their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the dual penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. So God is clear, just like he's clear in the prior discussion here in Romans 1, that heterosexual immorality is an abomination to him. He doesn't like that either. God's word has not stuttered on this issue. And so we're living in a day where people claim they're born again, but they live with their girlfriend. They've deceived themselves. They have adopted a lifestyle of immorality that will exclude them from the kingdom of God. Listen to what Paul says, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 5. He said, uh, for this, well, let me back it up. He says, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And so God is very clear that there should be no immorality or impurity or greed. Assumption, it's possible for a Christian to be immoral. It's possible for a pastor to commit adultery. It's possible for anyone to do any kind of thing. Let him who thinks he stand be careful lest he fall. But then he adds, for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater. In other words, this is their lifestyle. This is what captivates them. This is what drives them, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, some of these um, so-called evangelicals are saying, well, you don't have an inheritance in the coming kingdom, but you'll go to heaven. And that's a distortion of scripture. Anyone who enters the millennial kingdom of God you know, as a believer, will enter into heaven. And anyone who's excluded from the millennial reign of the Messiah will be excluded from heaven as well. Scripture is clear, letting Scripture interpret Scripture. So this you know with certainty. Look, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God, whether you see it immediately after you die and you enter into the fullest expression of God's kingdom in heaven, where heaven is also described as the kingdom of God, or whether someone is converted during the tribulation period and they enter the kingdom as a believer when Messiah comes to rule on the earth. Then he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. So this podcast, if they're advocating 
if they are advocating that you can be in a homosexual lifestyle and enter God's kingdom, they are deceived. Let no, and they're deceiving others. Let no one deceive you with empty words because of these things. What things? Immorality, impurity, of which heterosexual and homosexual illicit behavior would encompass. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. You were formerly darkness, but now you're in the light in the Lord. Walk as children of light in the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And what does someone do who's a member of God's kingdom? They're trying to learn that which is pleasing to the Lord. With that said, we could read many, many passages like this, but let's be reminded too that anyone can be converted, that if there's life, there's potential, where there's breath, there's potential life for the kingdom. So he reminds us in 1 Corinthians 6 that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Not fornicators, not idolaters, not adulterers, not effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will enter the kingdom of God. Such were, however, some of you. So God can save anyone. But my lifestyle does not fundamentally change. It just means I've not been regenerated by the Spirit. It just means that, you know, I've never been born again and I don't have an entrance into God's kingdom. So these are like really super important issues. And and we are watching Romans 1 unfold, not just in America, but across the world. So God is giving our nation over to a depraved mind. It's just an upside down mind. You know, when you've got these, you know, I was watching these people, you know, rioting. And it's been going on for weeks in some of these cities. And you've got these politicians who are, you know, basically endorsing it by their lack of action. That's a depraved mind. When a man looks at his body and he says he's a woman, that's a depraved mind. That's an upside down kind of mind. And that kind of mind is permeating the culture more and more. And I think that we're at that point that Christ spoke of that would happen at the end of time. Um, I, I don't expect really a revival. God can do whatever he wants. But some Christians think that if we just pray hard enough and fast have hard enough and God's people get right, that there's going to be revival. That's not true. The next big revival that God speaks of will be during the tribulation period after the church is raptured. Uh, there is going to be a time of gross apostasy, and we are seeing this lived out in the church where you have these churches. Someone wrote me, Yesterday, he um, came to Christ in our church when he's in the sixth grade. I remember their family because I was able to introduce his parents to Christ, and they moved away, and now he's in his early 20s. And he said, my pastor is advocating critical race theory and intersectionality and social justice, and I'm kind of concerned. And is this a, you know, a hill that we should fight on? And the answer is yes. That's apostasy and is entering the church. And some naive evangelicals who are not well-trained in the scriptures and really not qualified to even be pastors because they're not sound in doctrine are, are embracing some of these um, false movements. And so, but this is what God said would happen. We are seeing, I believe, the precursor to the apostasy. To There's always been apostasy in the church, 
But God tells us in latter times there will be apostasy. And then after the church is removed, 2 Thessalonians 2, we'll see the apostasy of apostasies because all the restraints will be gone. God gave man a conscience. Man is kicking against that conscience. The law of God that's been written in his heart is being dismissed as being true and right. Um, The family that God uses to protect a society is being broken down and falling apart. Uh, The government that's supposed to bear the sword as a protector is giving the sword away and defunding the police officers and everything else. And, And now the church is embracing false doctrine more and more. And this so-called evangelical church is becoming diluted. And there's only one restraint left, and that's the restraint of the Spirit. And once the church is removed, that restraint will be gone. And literally, you will not want to be alive on the earth. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And David from Trumbull, Connecticut writes, Pastor Carl, do you think that Isaiah 53.4 teaches that Christ bore our sicknesses and does Isaiah 53.5 give us permission to claim healing? I had to look at about five or six different versions of the Bible before I finally found it in... King uh, James, it uses sickness. Oh, and CSB, the... Uh, uh, yeah, yeah the Christian Standard Bible. It used, to be, it used to be the HCSB, which you can still get. Uh, it was a translation started by the SBC... And then they refined it a little bit more and shortened the name to the Christian Standard Bible. Um, The fact that it says sickness or sorrows really doesn't make any difference to the argument. Let me read Isaiah 53, 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. Verse 5 says... He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. So in the health, wealth, name it, claim it movement, one of the favorite verses, though I'm not sure how well they're doing during COVID, is Christians all across the country are getting sick. Um, But they basically say, well, you know, surely our griefs bore and our sorrows he carried. And you have the King James Version or the CSB in front of you there, Rick. Can you you bring up that translation and Uh, read it for me? Yes, I can. Hold on a second here. All right. Christian Standard Bible. And uh, you want verse 5? Yeah, give me verse 4. For yet he himself bore our sicknesses. Okay, that's all I need. So okay. he bore our sicknesses. The NASB says our, our, our griefs. And there's not a single English word that will translate this particular Hebrew word. So what translation is right? They both are. He's talking about grieving kind of sicknesses. So here's how this passage is approached. Some evangelicals who want to dismiss the health-wealth movement, and let me just say how they interpret it. They say that just as Jesus bore your sin on the cross, in his own body in the cross, and by faith you receive forgiveness of sin uh, through his work on the cross, they take verse 4, surely our sicknesses they would typically read out of the King James or the CSB or a few other translations he himself bore. And they would say, just as he bore our sins, he bore our sicknesses. How do you receive forgiveness? By faith for your sins. How do you receive healing? By faith for your sicknesses, because they argue that on the cross, Jesus paid the debt in full. And so if you're sick 
and you don't claim by faith healing, it's your lack of faith. Well, clearly, God doesn't heal everyone. If he did, no one would die. Not to mention there are people who are right in the center of God's will because they live in a fallen world, get sick. Now, I will say, obviously, some sickness is due to sin, but a lot of the sickness in the world happens just because we are living in a fallen world. And God uses medicine as well. There were certainly miracles that God did through Christ and through his apostles, but not always. You know, Paul left one of his dear friends at the point of death as he writes to the church at Philippi. He reminds Timothy to take a little wine for his frequent illnesses as a medicine. He was probably, you know, drinking water only, but as a traveling pastor, as he often was, and with the water problems in the first century world, he didn't need to be a John the Baptist or a Nazarite. He just needed to add a little wine to the water uh, because he was getting sick. So, um, again, Paul didn't say, well, just believe God and you'll be well. No, um, they had to sometimes use the means that God gave. But, again, uh, the name it, claim it, say you just by faith, you know, believe that Jesus bore your sicknesses like he bore your sin and you'll be immediately well. And so the Kenneth Copelands and the Hagans and all these other heretics that don't have the gospel, they're false teachers Um, use these verses out of context. And if you don't get healed, it's not their fault. It's your fault. It's your lack of faith. Um, And so, you know, the whole even confessional theology, you don't say, well, I'm sick. Uh, You say, I'm well, because what you say happens to you. Just one nonsensical false teaching after another. Some evangelicals who want to dismiss that view argue very simply that this is purely figurative, that Jesus did not literally um, bear our sicknesses. And they would say, well, the context would argue for transgressions, iniquities, uh, wickedness, sin, and that the context uh, and thrust of the passage is dealing with the subject of sin. Well, that's true. The context of the passage is dealing with the subject of sin. Uh, but I don't think that dismisses verse 3 for the simple reason. And, and, and I should say, out of fairness to them, they would say there is healing in the atonement, but it's not realized until the resurrection. And I would agree with that, that in the fullest sense, healing for the atonement is realized when we receive our resurrected body like the Lord's. But again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so if you have, say, the New American Standard with marginal notes— uh, it will give you a cross-reference where some of these passages are referenced. And so I'm turning now to uh, Matthew chapter 8. And in Matthew chapter 8, this actual passage of Scripture is quoted for us. Jesus quotes it, um, or Matthew quotes it. Remember, Matthew is a Jewish gospel. So Matthew is writing to people who are Jews and who are basically being equipped with an argument on how to defend the gospel and the claims of Jesus to be the king and Messiah to their Jewish friends. That's the purpose of the gospel. And so I read now in Matthew chapter 8, it says, When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she got up and waited on him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. This, here it is, this, 
this healing that he did, these demons that were cast out and so on. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. So Matthew, of course, he's quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek translation, which is the main translation Jews used in that day. So it reads just a little different, but it's the same message. It's the same thing. It's just coming from a different receptor language. So Matthew sees Isaiah 53, 4 is being fulfilled here in Capernaum when Jesus is healing the sick. So again, remember Isaiah 53, it's a confession. You're dealing with Jewish people who are um, in the end confessing what they missed. Jewish people during the uh, tribulation period when they recognize Yeshua is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. This will be really a confession of faith that they will be able to give. Our griefs he bore, our sorrows he carried. Yet, here's the, 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 the craziness of it all. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. So here was Jesus, who is compassionate, loving, kind, gracious, did all these miracles to heal the Jewish people and showed that he loved them. And yet they esteemed him as a stricken and smitten of God. Their conclusion in the first century and in many ways throughout the centuries is that Jesus was a great sinner. Yet someday they're going to simply confess if we had just looked at the graciousness of the Lord Jesus and the compassionate ministry of healing that he had towards us, we should have concluded differently. And that's what the next verse really confesses. So um, I think it's really looking at, you know, the conclusions that they made and the conclusions that they will make. Interestingly, Isaiah uh, 52 and 53, I know the chapter divisions are somewhat artificial, but really the whole argument for 53 starts in chapter 52. And one of the questions that's asked at the end of 52 is, into whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And Lord, who has believed our report? And John 12 quotes that same verse of Scripture where Jesus had been doing all kinds of miracles, and yet the conclusion was is that he was not the Messiah, and they were denying what God had clearly revealed. So Isaiah 53 is a really powerful, powerful chapter of Scripture. It's uh, one of the most important passages that you might be able to Uh, share with a Jewish person who's considering the claims of whether Jesus could be the Messiah, because it's written about 700 years before Jesus steps out of heaven and shows up in human flesh in the house of bread, and it's like an eyewitness of not just his life, but of his death and of his resurrection, ever before it happens. same conclusion. Uh, These were powerful texts of Scripture. So it has nothing to do with what the health wealth movement, that's a false movement. It's a lie. It's made people multi-millionaires. They're crooks. They, They have all the marks and signs of what the book of Jude describes as false teachers. All right. Very good. Last week, we were not live, but we did get a couple of calls. One from Michael in Savannah, 
who asked to dictate the question. He says, uh, we see that Christianity is always the religion that faces persecution in countries like China and now even in America. This despite the fact that Christians are called to be relatively peaceful as opposed to religions like Islam. Is there anything in the Bible that supports that Christianity in particular will be persecuted as opposed to other religions? Well, um, it is certainly a mark of the Christian faith, and in many ways is unique to Christianity because of what we represent. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. So we are to live such a distinct life that like light that shines and dispels darkness, or the previous metaphor used in verse 13 of chapter 5 of Matthew's gospel, we're to be like salt. Um, He talks about if the salt has lost its savor, has become tasteless. It it can't be made salty again. It's good for nothing but to be thrown under foot and to fill in the potholes in the road. Um, But here's the thing about light is it shines uh, truth on sin. And so Christianity more poignantly does that than any other faith, but not exclusively. The Jews, for instance, who represent biblical truth, also do the same thing every time they say what God says. And as a people, they are certainly persecuted and despised and and hated. Uh, But, and, and I should say that there have been other religions that have been persecuted, like Muslims, during the time of Crusades, the Crusades, but they were being persecuted not by people who were Christians. Uh, What was done in the name of Christianity was not being done by born-again Christians. The Crusades that slaughtered Jews and Muslims had nothing to do with the faith delivered once and for all. It had a lot to do with Roman Catholicism, but it had nothing to do with biblical Christianity. But the point is, is that as Christians, we will be persecuted, and it's, it's growing. It's increasing. Um, I was speaking with someone, and uh, we we're discussing the pros, uh, uh, well, the, the results of the upcoming election in November, what will happen if Trump is not elected, what will happen if Trump is elected. And we both suspected that if Trump is elected, which I hope he is because I'm not in favor of a platform that wants to murder little babies as the Democratic platform has written into it. I'm not in favor of a platform that uh, esteems the LGBTQIA plus lifestyle that God calls an abomination that they want to make normative, which is in their platform. I'm not in a favor of a platform that hates Israel. Some of the things that have happened in the last um, 10 days in terms of Israel and some treaties that have been made with some Arab countries, I promise you it's linked to their hope and desire for Donald J. Trump to be reelected. So I'm not in favor of a party that does that. But if they are elected, if Biden becomes the president of the United States, I'm telling you, we haven't seen anything, especially if they take control over the House and over the Senate. Uh, America will fundamentally change. 
If Donald Trump is elected, I suspect there will be rioting in the streets. Why? Because of this growing hatred for what's true. I'm not saying that Donald Trump is like, you know, this godly, highly committed Christian. I don't know if he's saved. I do know that the decisions that he has made to protect life, to protect Israel, to, um, you know, protect religious freedom has been unprecedented since Ronald Reagan. And I'm grateful to God for that as a pastor. And I know that the progressive left agenda that has entered right in the front door of the Democratic Party, they have a whole nother way of looking at life that is anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Bible. They can use the word faith and God and all this stuff, but they're blaspheming the name of God. They're using the name of God in vain when you have a Nancy Pelosi and um, the last president's wife, Michelle Obama, you know, advocating the murder of little babies in the womb. I'm telling you that in Joe Biden, he was the one who opened the door for Obama for same-sex marriage when he was interviewed one weekend, and he said he was in favor of it, and he backed Obama into a corner, so he had to come out in favor of it. These are wicked, wicked kinds of decisions that are being made that hurt the heart of God, that are inviting the judgment of God that is already on our nation, but will only increase lest we repent. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, my apologies. Earlier, I had my microphone open while I was taking a call, but we do have a live caller standing by now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Go ahead. I'm listening. Is this, uh... Hello? Yes, I'm listening. Go ahead. Thanks for calling today. Tell me what your question is. Uh, y- yes, sir. I'm sorry. Uh, I-, I listened to a, a-, a pastor expound on Melchizedek, saying that he was a pre-incarnate Christ. And I've never thought of him as more than an example of the king-priest that Christ would would be. And I've never thought of him as being a pre-incarnate Christ. Could you expound on whether he is or was? Yeah, so let me give you the short answer, and then I'll give you a resource for my long answer. I have preached through, verse by verse, the book of Hebrews. So if you go to searchthescriptures.org, and if you have a smartphone, you can download the app. Go to the App Store and type in search the scriptures, not .com, but org. That's the app you want. And uh, you can then listen at your leisure when you're working out in the yard or driving down the highway or whatever to the sermon off of your phone. And I preach through the book of Hebrews, and I walk through Hebrews chapter 7 very, very, very carefully. And uh, Hebrews 7 is a beautiful picture for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all his spoils was first of all by the translation of his name king of righteousness and then also king of salem king of peace and so shalom and melchizedek so his name means righteousness and peace without father without mother without genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life but made like the son of god he remains a priest perpetually So some take verse 3, and their argument is that this was the Lord Jesus who had no father or mother 
or genealogy. Actually, that doesn't even fit the Lord Jesus perfectly. He had a human mother. Her name was Mary. So in what sense was Melchizedek without father, without mother, without genealogy? The way he shows up on the pages of Scripture in Genesis 14 when um, Abraham gives a tenth of all that he has. There's no record of him. You don't know who his parents are. You don't know his genealogical background. And in that sense, he is like, it's a, a simile here. He is like the Son of God. So he is what we would call a type of the Lord Jesus. He is a picture of the Lord Jesus in that uh, Jesus fulfills really three offices, prophet, priest, and king. And so, of course, in the thrust of the argument of the book of Hebrews, he is arguing over the superiority of Christ as a priest, and we have a high priest who intercedes for us over the Aaronic priesthood, over Aaron, who was, um, you know, of the, of the tribe of Levites, the family of Aaron, who were the leading priests under the Old Testament. And, of course, the problem in the book of Hebrews is you had Jewish believers, born-again Christians, who thought to themselves, well, you know, if we go back and practice uh, Judaism while confessing Christianity, the persecution will be less. And that's what some of them were doing in order to escape persecution. And the writer of the Hebrews shows the superiority of all that Yeshua, the Messiah, did over Aaron and over Moses and the law and everything else in the sacrificial system, that that was wrong to do that. And so he is showing the superiority of Melchizedek over the kind of priesthood that you would have found in the temple in the first century. But I have an hour-long, actually two-hour sermons, two one-hour sermons on this very passage. So go to searchthescriptures.org. I will show why it's impossible to take this as a pre-incarnate Christ. Though I did mention on Sunday that some expositors have taken it this way, and my point was is that whether you saw him as a pre-incarnate Christ or a type of Christ, the fact is is that um, Abraham gave a tenth of all that he had. And, of course, I was arguing for the continuance of tithing even in the church age. But listen to that sermon. I think uh, you will get a very in-depth answer to this arm uh, chair kind of question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We had another caller call in a minute ago, and they dictated their question. She had heard somebody say that uh, now God talks all day to all people and was wondering, does God speak to those who are not his children? Well, clearly, yes. The question is, how does he do it? Um, and he does not do it in the same way with those who are born again. So when you use the term children or even children of God, and sometimes politicians, sometimes even liberal preachers use it very loosely, and they say, well, we're all children of God. Well, only in a creative sense, according to Malachi in Acts uh, 17. But in a spiritual way, there's only two kinds of children. Once someone has reached an age or a better said, maybe a point of accountability, there's only two kinds of children. Paul says in Ephesians 2, by nature, we were children of wrath. Um, but as many as received him, John will write, to them he gave the right, the authority, the exousia, the power to be called, to be dubbed children of God. He'll write in his first letter, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God and such we are. So only through a birth from above are we called children of God. 
But in a creative sense, in a broad sense, there's what theologians call general revelation. That is, it's that most general revelation that God gives to all men by which he communicates to them. Uh, It's seen in creation, and it's seen in conscience, and it's really even seen in his care. The heavens are telling of the glory of God in their expanses declaring the work of his hands. Day by day pours forth speech. That's God's talking. And night by night reveals knowledge. So God's heaven declares that he is Lord, that he is the creator. Paul makes the same argument in the New Testament in Romans 1. He speaks in Romans 1 and verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. There's different kinds of wrath in the Bible. There's um, eschatological wrath that we will see during the time of the Great Tribulation. There's cataclysmic wrath that you saw during the Great Flood or Uh, We saw it during the time of Lot when God forever said how he feels about the sin of homosexuality. Uh, Then there's eternal wrath, Uh, but there's also a present wrath, and that's what he's talking about. The wrath of God is being, not will be, but is being revealed from heaven. And that's what America, and not just America, multiple countries around the world are seeing. Uh, Why? Because there are men, people, it's... um, uh, it's uh, anthropos, actually anthropoi, plural, uh, speaking of men and women alike, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. How did God speak to men? How did God make himself known to men? For since the creation of the world, this is Psalm 19 that I just quoted. Uh, for a sense, the, it's the same principle, not a quotation of Psalm 19. For a sense, the creation of the world, his, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. How? Being understood through what has been made so that men are without excuse. So no one can say, well, God's never spoken uh, to me that he exists. That's why, biblically speaking, uh, there's no case for atheism. You're wasting your breath on trying to defend the existence of God to the atheist. God never does that. His apostles never does it, except to say twice over, quoting the same verse, the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. No, God has shouted his existence through the creation. And then in Romans 2, God speaks in another way. In 2.14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law, law to themselves. How? And that they show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So Paul is saying even people who don't have the Bible, raw, hardcore pagans, have God speak to them through their conscience. Now, conscience can become seared and calloused, and a good conscience can become what the Bible calls an evil conscience and lose all of its ability to respond. But this is, by the way, is very different from the way God speaks to someone who's regenerated by the Spirit. And Paul brings this out in uh, his letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says in verse 9, "...things which eye has not seen, and and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man." all that God has prepared for those who love him. Now, unfortunately, this is often preached at at funerals. And I suppose you could apply it in that realm is that when you get to heaven, you'll see the actuality of it. But Paul's not talking about something that happens when you die. Uh, 
He's talking about something that God is revealing to his people today. For to us, the next verse says, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men know the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we, talking about people who've been born from above, have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we, believers, may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual man. But here's the contrast. For an unbeliever, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Their foolishness to him, he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So God doesn't speak to the lost man in the same way he does to the believer. Why? Because he doesn't have the equipment. Look, asking a lost man, a natural man, Jude defines him as being devoid of the Spirit. That's the way we are come, brought into this world, physically alive, spiritually dead. A natural man, asking him to let God speak to him from the Bible, unless he's coming to faith in Christ by the Spirit of God, is like asking a blind man to evaluate a piece of artwork or a deaf man to be the judge of a music recital. He doesn't have the equipment to do it. So no, God does not speak to the unbeliever who is created in the image and likeness of God apart from creation and conscience, and you could argue God's care from the Sermon on the Mount that he causes the rain and the sun to shine on the righteous and the wicked. He he shows his general care and compassion to all people. So through those three expressions of general, general revelation is how God speaks, but to the believer he speaks uniquely because we are indwelt by the Spirit, and he is the one who illumines the truth of the Bible such that it makes sense to us. All right, very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and William from Stevens City, Virginia, would like to know whether you have ever taught on or addressed a question on the Bible line from Matthew 10, 32 and 33. He writes, I'm understanding this section to be related to how the believer spends their eternity in the kingdom and not a loss of salvation issue. In other words, it's about rewards. Would you steer me to a sermon or message, if possible, that addresses these passages? Well, um, I'm sure I've preached on it, but let me just comment on it. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who's in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who's in heaven. It is true that there have been some people, there was a guy who, uh, Robert... Wilkin and a few others with him who um, started the Grace Theological Society or Grace Evangelical Society back in the 70s and 80s, where they took, I think, the grace of God to an extreme, and they argued that what was in view here was not salvation but rewards. I don't think they were right. Number one, let me just say that, you know, Christ is clear that if we're not public about our allegiance to him— we can't expect him to be public before the Father about his allegiance to us. Uh, he never, ever called anyone secretly. There's no such thing as a secret Christian. Christ always calls people publicly. Uh, we used to say back in the 1970s, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? 
Well, one of the marks that someone is born again is that they will indeed confess Jesus is Lord unashamedly, publicly. But how do I know definitively that this is not about rewards? Well, again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so in the um, parallel text, Jesus is clear in Mark uh, 8. Uh, let me just turn there. And he summoned the crowd, I'm reading starting in verse 34, with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what profit is there for a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation the Son of Man will be ashamed of. And so his, his point is that this is a mark of conversion. You're not saved by confessing Christ, but if you are saved, you will confess Christ. And that's why in the next breath he can go on and say, do not think in Matthew's account that you're referencing. In Matthew ten twenty four that I came to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Now, Christ had a peaceful message as the Sermon on the Mount uh, you know, underscores that we're to be peacemakers, but the message itself will divide people like a sword. I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against his mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Why? Because they confess Jesus is Lord, and that's bothersome to some people, and they hate it. All right, very good. Well, I didn't think we were going to have time. Maybe you can address the question uh, came up from a listener a minute ago who said uh, he was watching a movie called Noah. And uh, in that movie, it uh, gives the indication that uh, that God never changes uh, his commandments. And so he was wondering, you know, how this all plays out in terms of uh, observing the Sabbath. Well, um, let me just say I... I have a whole message on the Christian and the Sabbath in my series in Genesis. I think it's the third a message in the whole series. I did like 50-some sermons on the book of Genesis. So you might want to listen to that because I only have about a minute or so left. But the Sabbath, you know, the first mention of it is in Genesis 2 where God rested from all his works and he sanctified and set apart the seventh day where God rested from his work, not because he was tied, but because he set it apart. And the next mention of the Sabbath is not until some 2,500 years later when Moses reminds us that the Sabbath is a sign between God and the people of Israel. Um, God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But sometimes the way he deals with his people changes. Uh, you don't bring animal sacrifices anymore because of the once and for all sacrifice. And under the new covenant, that is distinct from the old deal. God calls his people to worship on the first day of the week. Interestingly, during the millennial reign of Messiah, we will go back to worshiping on the seventh day. But that's the real short answer. Go to uh, my series in Genesis. You can find it, searchthescriptures.org, and I walk through all the major passages that deal with this. Well, we're out of time. A lot of questions still to answer that came in, but God willing, there'll be another Tuesday. Mm-hmm.